Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week is week number 19, Judges chapters 12 and 13. Well, this week we conclude the story of Jephthah, the judge who liberated the northern tribes of Israel from the oppression and the threats of the king of Ammon. Now, the last time we met, we spent a good deal of study on the matter of Jephthah's only child, a daughter, who became the subject of a rash vow by her father, Jephthah. This vow was to sacrifice as an Allah, usually translated as a burnt offering, the first thing to greet him out of, his do- out of the door of his home when he returned from battle. And the vow was in exchange for the Lord giving Jephthah and his army, consisting mainly of men from Gilead, victory. Now it's key to note that nowhere do we have the Lord acknowledging the validity of Jephthah's vow. Now Jephthah was indeed victorious. He returned home only to be quite unexpectedly greeted by his virgin daughter. Later we are told that he did to her what he had vowed to God. This subject is controversial on a number of levels. First, because there has been much doubt cast on whether or not Jephthah actually offered his daughter as a human sacrifice. And we find that later scholars, both Hebrew and Gentile, suggested that instead of her being sacrificed, she was simply given over to the Levites to serve in perpetuity as a female tabernacle worker and thus This was the difficult consequence of her father's vow in that it required her to remain an unmarried virgin all of her days. Well, the second controversy is that there's this notion that Jephthah's daughter was not sacrificed, but it arose only 2,000 years after the fact. All written documents, all oral tradition prior to 500 A.D. claimed that Jephthah's daughter was killed. Only after that time did a new breed of scholars say she wasn't and they found an alternative explanation. The third controversy is that in fact the ancient Hebrews make it quite clear that it was not anything that came first out of his door that Jephthah said he would sacrifice, but rather any person. In other words, the usual rationale for this story is that Jephthah envisioned an animal running to greet him when he returned from the war and thus was shocked to see his daughter emerge from the doorway. The Hebrew term referring to the object of the sacrifice that Jephthah promised to God is asher. And it refers to a human, not to an animal. Further, the idea that a sheep or a cow or some type of clean animal suitable for sacrifice would be the first to run to greet him is illogical. 
Right? A dog might, I suppose, but a dog is an unclean animal. Okay? Rather, in that era, it was expected and required that when the master returned home from a journey, the, ho- the chief house servant would be on the lookout for him and then would race to meet him to wash his feet and offer him refreshment. Only after that would his family greet him. Thus, Jephthah more likely fully expected and had in his mind to sacrifice a servant when he made that vow. But was grief-stricken when his daughter broke standard Middle Eastern protocol and greeted her father before the chief house servant did. The fourth controversy is that even in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, Jephthah is listed as one of the great heroes of Israel. And he's lauded for his service to God. It is this biblical mention in the book of Hebrews that has caused some Christian scholars to surmise that such praise lavished upon Jephthah would not have been allowed had he done such an abominable thing as committing a human sacrifice, especially upon his own child. Now, I concluded by admitting that while there's reasonable room for disagreement on this subject, my position is that it was, it's always best to take the scripture for what it plainly states within its context and with the critical understanding of what specific kind of literature we're reading Poetry, history, accounting, narrative, legend, all of which appears in the Bible. Thus, it's nearly impossible for me to think that the plain meaning of the scripture in Judges 11, which, by the way, is a historical account, and then the continual 2,000 years of commentary and oral tradition without opposition that confirmed the biblical story about Jephthah's ill-fated daughter, ought to suddenly be set aside for a newer and other interpretation that more meets with modern expectations and sensibilities that makes us feel better. I maintain that indeed Jephthah did sacrifice his daughter, even though it was a terrible wrong. And it was completely against the Torah. And it was counter to all of the Lord's principles. As we read Judges 12, we, were, we were, will see even more of Jephthah's flawed character revealed as evidence that, you know, he really would not at all have seen killing his own daughter as a pious, albeit painful, religious act as anything but expected it improper even if it was devastating to him personally. Alright, open your Bibles to Judges chapter 12. Judges chapter 12. That's page 286 if you have the complete Jewish Bible. <coughs> the men of Ephraim assembled, crossed into Tzaphon and said to Yiftak, Jephthah, Why didn't you call us to go with you when you went over to fight the people of Hamon? We're ready to burn down your house with you in it. And Yiftak answered, When my people and I were in serious dispute with the people of Hamon, I called you. 
and you didn't rescue me from their power. When I saw that you weren't rescuing me, I put my life in my own hands and went over to attack the people of Ammon, and Adonai gave them over into my power. So why have you come up today to fight with me? Then Yiftok gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim, and the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim, because they were saying, You Gilead men who live in Ephraim and Manasseh have deserted Ephraim. The men of Gilead cut off Ephraim from the crossings over the Jordan. And whenever anyone from Ephraim tried to escape and said, Let me go across, the men of Gilead would ask him, Are you from Ephraim? And if he said no, they would tell him to say, Shibalate. And if he said, Sibalate, because he could not make his mouth pronounce it right, they took hold of him and killed him on the spot at the Jordan crossing. At that time, 42,000 men of Ephraim died. Yiftok judged Israel for six years, then Yiftok from Gilead died, and he was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. And after him, Ipsan of Beit Lachem judged Israel. He had 30 sons, he had 30 daughters whom he sent abroad. He brought 30 women from abroad to marry his sons. He judged Israel for seven years. Then Ipsan died, and he was buried in Beit Lachem. After him, Elyon from Zebulun judged Israel. He judged Israel for ten years. Then Elyon from Zebulun died and was buried at Ayalon in the territory of Zebulun. And after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, from Pirton judged Israel. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy donkeys. He judged Israel for eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, from Pirton died. And he was buried at Pirton in the territory of Ephraim in the Amalek Hills. This short chapter ties up some loose ends and kind of brings this era to a close. Now remember, the book of Judges is not a a work that's authored by one person. Rather, it's a compilation of tradition and history that ancient editors put together to give an accurate and cogent account of the three to four hundred year time span in between the death of Joshua and the coming anointing of King Saul. Thus, just as a person giving an account of World War II would have to pick and choose which of the countless events and actions during that period would paint the best picture overall of what happened, so he would also have to weave it together in a logical way for it to be effective and have any meaning for future readers. This is what the book of Judges is. And why we even find the need for what's written down in chapter 12, as short as it is. Now the main thrust here in chapter 12 revolves around the tribes of Ephraim, or rather the tribe of Ephraim. Now, now those who've been around the Hebrew Roots movement know that Ephraim plays a critical role in Israel's past, present, and future. Okay. Now, while there is no consensus on the precise role of Ephraim in the end times, we can apprehend some aspects of Ephraim's inherent nature okay, that shows its ugly head throughout biblical history in the book of Judges. And one of those aspects is 
that Ephraim sees himself, or better, maybe itself, as a bit above the other tribes. As feeling self-important. Displaying quite a lot of arrogance and self-righteousness. Now part of the reason that Ephraim had this overblown sense of national grandeur is that Ephraim was probably the largest of all the tribes at this time. And had a historical importance because the venerated conqueror of Canaan, Joshua, was an Ephraimite. Now that said, the tribe of Judah might well have been its equal. Okay? So while Ephraim was definitely preeminent up in the northern area of Canaan, Judah held sway to the south. We can be sure that if Ephraim were truly powerful enough, it would have taken on the tribe of Judah. By the way, it did exactly that many times in, into the future of, of, the, of the book of Judges. Thus, in chapter 12, we have the leaders of Ephraim coming to Jephthah with a familiar complaint. You didn't invite us to the party. And we're mad. We got our feelings hurt. Now, a few chapters ago, they did the same thing, didn't they? With Gideon. After Gideon had beaten Israel's enemies, Ephraim comes, shows up and wants to be praised. They want to be bowed down to and they want to be given its place at the head of the line for the lion's share of the spoils of war. One by Gideon and the other tribesmen of Israel. Now Gideon showed himself to be an able diplomat as well as a superb leader of warriors and thus he appeased Ephraim. Jephthah, on the other hand, is not Gideon. And he has no interest in granting Ephraim's demands, nor does he have the patience to give their ridiculous assertions any credibility. Jephthah is pure warrior. And when challenged, he reacts in one way. Attack. Well, Ephraim made a fatal mistake. In verse verse 1, It says that they came to Jephthah and they threatened to kill him and his whole household for supposedly insulting Ephraim by not consulting them regarding the war with Ammon. Jephthah refutes this and says that in fact he did call them for help and Ephraim just stood on the sidelines instead and this is undoubtedly exactly what happened knowing Ephraim's history. Well apparently this powwow with Ephraim happened some weeks after Ammon had been defeated because Jephthah had already dismissed his army to go home. So verse 4 says that because of this problem now with Ephraim, he now gathered together all the men of Gilead. He brought them back and fought with Ephraim. Now you know, it seems as though the final straw was some irretrievable insult that Ephraim hurled at Jephthah in their meeting. Ephraim basically says that the men of Gilead are really only deserters from Ephraim and Manasseh anyway. 
Okay. Ephraim is describing the army of Gilead as nothing but a ragtag mob, probably not to be counted among their brothers, even as Israelites. Anything but a legitimate army. And that these people have no status to lead or to govern because they're just not noble enough. As Ephraim sees itself as so illustrious and thus automatically deserving of a ruling status. Now, no doubt this accusation brought up a long-held burning bitterness within Jephthah because he had been exiled from Israel because his mother was a prostitute. He had been banished from his own Israelite family because they saw his status as too lowly. It was this exile that caused Jephthah to put together his band of bandits to start raiding Israelite and other caravans to make a living and then later the leading men of Israel when they were in dire straits asked Jephthah to come home and to use his army to fight for them. It was Jephthah's band of men that was now the lead troops in ending Ammon's oppression over Israel. But Ephraim, who didn't even participate in the battle, says the men of Gilead were never worthy of such a task. That's a pretty big insult. Now let me paint you a picture at this point. I want you to see just how divided Israel had become by Jephthah's era since the days of Moses and then Joshua. Ephraim, you see, was a rival with Judah. They weren't a united family at all. They both lived on the west side of the Jordan River. Gilead was located on the east side and thus seen and treated by those on the west as practically another nation, even though they were Hebrews. Ephraim and Judah were well aware that even though Moses had legitimized some of the Israelite tribes living in the uh, Transjordan, east of the Jordan, in fact, that was not the holy promised land. Those Thus those nine and a half tribes that lived spread out through Canaan saw themselves as better than the two and a half tribes who had chosen to live on the east bank of the Jordan, outside the Holy Land. Those two and a half tribes were quite sensitive to this reality and not just a little bit touchy when the subject was broached. So we see that there was this enormous and growing schism between the Israelite tribes who lived in the Transjordan versus those who lived in Canaan. And also between those Israelite tribes who lived in Canaan but were more aligned with Ephraim up to the north versus those tribes who lived in the south and were aligned with Judah. I mean, this reality of disunity is demonstrated in verses 5 and 6 especially. Because after Jephthah has attacked Ephraim and routed them, After Ephraim realizes that despite their large numbers of of loyal soldiers, they have no chance 
against this experienced and tough army of men from Gilead, we find the Ephraimite troops fleeing in all directions, trying to save themselves and then lying about their identities when they're caught. See, the fight between Jephthah's men and Ephraim was occurring mainly on the east side of the Jordan River. And the Ephraimite soldiers were trying to get back over the Jordan into their territory. Knowing this, Ephraim sent his men to guard the fording points all along the river. It seems that when the Ephraimite men were caught and questioned, they denied that they were Ephraimites. But some clever officer from Gilead devised a simple test. Every male who was trying to ford the Jordan was required to say the word Shibboleth. If they couldn't properly pronounce it and instead said Sibboleth, then it identified them as an Ephraimite and they were killed on the spot. Shibboleth, like so many Hebrew words, actually has two different meanings. It can mean an ear of corn. Matter of fact, they may even say that in some of your Bibles. Or it could mean the flood of a stream or a flood of a river. Its use depended on its context. Since the context here is that the questioning took place at the fords of the Jordan River, it's pretty obvious that its actual meaning was flood of a stream or flood of a river and not an ear of corn in this case. So what we see is that the split among the Israelite tribes had become so serious, so deep, and had developed over such a long period of time that each tribe or coalition of tribes had by now even gained their own Hebrew dialect. Just as in America we've developed different dialects of English that enable us to readily tell when a person is from the south or the northeast or from the west, so it was among the Israelites. Apparently, the Ephraimites had lost their ability to pronounce the letter Sheen, which has an SH sound. And instead now, their mouths could only form the S sound. Now this was a dead giveaway that proved to be fatal. Well, Jephthah's army devastated the Ephraimite army and killed 42,000 of them, many simply because they couldn't make the sh sound. And thus, able to hide their allegiance so they could escape. Now, there is no doubt that for many years this would have greatly curtailed Ephraim's ability both to protect itself and to project its power over others. So its status would have been been diminished for a time as a result of its arrogance that led to this ill-conceived and completely unnecessary battle with Jephthah and the highly insulted men of Gilead who had done such a great service for Israel. Well, next we're told that Jephthah judged for six years and then died. Now, this didn't go unnoticed by the ancient Hebrew sages, and we ought to make note of it as well. Judging for only six years 
was a very short length of time. Anywhere from 20 to 80 years was more the norm for the earlier Shoftim judges. Further, the original Hebrew states, interestingly, that he was buried in some undisclosed cities, plural, multiple cities in Gilead, not, as we typically see it written, in one city selected from several cities in Gilead. Well, how are you buried in multiple cities? Well, there had to be, in the minds of ancient sages, a good reason for such a short duration of judging, considering the great victories that Jephthah had won over God's enemies, and also, how do you explain him being buried in multiple cities? They determined that because of Jephthah's great sin of killing his daughter to complete his vow that the Lord punished him. Listen to this excerpt, very ancient excerpt from the Midrash in the Talmud on this subject. It says this, Because he was stricken with leprosy as a punishment, his death was lingering and his limbs fell off one by one and were buried in different cities where they happened to drop off. Now whether that's true or not, I can't tell you. But it sure brings back the mindset, again, prior to 500 A.D., what people thought they knew about Jephthah. So, it points out that even on the one hand, while Jephthah had done some great things for the Lord, on the other he committed some dastardly and nearly unthinkable sins. Now we've spoken of one of those great sins at length, but another is that because, Jephthah, uh, because Ephraim insulted Jephthah in a very sensitive area of his psyche, Jephthah went on an unabated binge of revenge, kill, killing so many Ephraimites. There is no evidence that Ephraim ever harmed Jephthah, rather it just merely threatened and insulted. But in response, Jephthah attacked and ruthlessly killed 42,000 of Ephraim. In fact, he went so far as to blockade the fording points of the Jordan River and then to murder those soldiers who had dropped their weapons and were merely trying to get back home. Again, this was not some foreign enemy Jephthah was dealing with. It was his Hebrew brethren. It was his Hebrew brethren he was slaughtering. For no other reason than that the leaders of Ephraim had slighted him. And he was deeply upset by it. These were not Canaanites who were to be expelled from the land at God's instructions, they were fellow Israelites. So Jephthah was a man whose bloodthirsty ways were used by Jehovah for his purposes, but when not under Holy Spirit guidance and control, these same attributes led him to do monstrous things. Well, the era of Jephthah is over. 
and after him came Ibsan. Now, practically nothing is said of him. We're not even sure of his tribal affiliation. Some say that he must have been of the tribe of Judah because he was from Bethlehem. But just like other place names, there were a whole bevy of Bethlehems in Canaan. And since Ibsah took over from Jephthah, he probably would have ruled over the north, or probably more likely the northern central north central part of Canaan, or maybe even over Gilead and the east bank of the Jordan, maybe both. It's exceedingly unlikely that the Bethlehem mentioned here is the one we think of today, all right, in the territory of Judah in the south of Canaan. That the Shofet Ibsan had 30 sons and 30 daughters indicates he was a wealthy aristocrat. It, it draws an interesting contrast, by the way, between this man who immediately followed Jephthah and Jephthah who had how many children? One. And that was a daughter who was ultimately killed in her youth. The 30 daughters talked about for Ibsan were actually daughters-in-law. Wives for his sons that he brought in from abroad. The complete Jewish Bible, I think, has a pretty bad translation where it states that Ibsan had 30 biological daughters and also brought in 30 foreign, uh, foreign women for his biological sons to marry. When you go back and look at the Hebrew, what it's plainly stating is it's, this is the same 30. It's not 30 and 30. Okay? The point is, these daughters were foreigners. And this fits well with this constantly deteriorating condition of Israel to go out and get non-Hebrew women as wives for his Hebrew sons. Not only is this against the Torah commands, but also highlights how the Israelites were far more interested in following typical Middle Eastern customs as practiced by their Gentile neighbors than than obeying the God of Israel. This bringing in of foreign wives was predicated on one purpose alone, making peace treaties with nearby pagan kingdoms. Intermarriage was then, and it remained for centuries, the primary means of creating an alliance between nations. We see that Ibsan only judged for seven years, one more than Jephthah. Again, we need only compare his short rule with his poor leadership and lifestyle to understand why such a relatively brief period of judging judging happened here. Yet, by all accounts, he was a legitimate shofet anointed by God to judge Israel. He was in no way a pretender. After Ibsan came the shofet Elion from the tribe of uh, Zebulun. Even less is known of him. He ruled for ten years and then died. And next came Adon, who had 40 sons and 30 grandsons, we're told. That these sons and grandsons rode on ass colts says that this was a very royal and aristocratic family. So many children also indicate many wives. He probably had well more than 40 daughters in addition to his sons. But also, it says that he ruled during a time of peace and prosperity, although from 
the time of his divine anointing until his death was just a mere eight years. Okay, let's move on to Judges chapter 13. And the story we've all heard about since we were children. The story of the muscle-bound Samson. Now before we read that chapter, you know what, let's, we'll probably read it next week. Before we read that chapter, I, I want to take a little time to set the stage. Bible scholars and Bible students alike have often looked at the story of Samson and said that he certainly was not a typical judge. But after we've now studied the majority of the judges fairly in depth, we can easily counter that question with one of our own. So what is a typical judge? They each invariably operated in different ways. Each invariably had their own set of character flaws and strengths to go with their own personal agendas and at times to bring about God's agenda. And thus we find that like all the rest, Samson was in a category all of his own. Now I think after so many weeks of in-depth study of the Shoftim, that we can say with some certainty that a tight or all-encompassing definition of what a judge was and what a judge did rests only within our imaginations. It varied all over the map. Samson lived during a time of Philistine oppression over Israel. In fact, it had been ongoing for about 40 years. Now, it's important for us to visualize that we have an overlap in time frame between the lives and missions of Samuel, who we've yet to even read about, and Samson. In fact, the Philistine oppression in the West, near the Mediterranean Sea, was beginning at about the same time as the judge Jephthah was operating and was anointed to fight back against the oppression of the Ammonites over that portion of Israel that was in the Transjordan. The point being that Israel was fighting off severe aggression in some cases and simply overpowering pagan social pressures in other cases in several areas simultaneously. There wasn't a single tribe of Israel who wasn't fighting for their lives or their way of life in one form or another during Samson's era. Uh, By the time of Samson, the Philistines had already taken the Hebrews' precious Ark of the Covenant from them. The result of a disastrous war and a very sad defeat of the Israelites during the closing years of Eli, Eli, the high priest of Israel. Now, because the stories of Eli and then Samuel appear in the Bible after the story of Samson, it would seem as though the war with Philistia and the loss of the Ark of the Testimony happened at a later time. But in fact, these are merely accounts of different things going on at different places in roughly the same narrow slice of time. You with me on that? Now let's be clear. At the time of Samson, we need to be careful in our use of the term oppression when referring to the Philistines. Indeed, they held the upper hand. 
They were the masters of the region. But they weren't trying to annihilate the local Israelites by any means. When we read scripture closely and then also examine some extra biblical sources, we tend to see a political and social landscape along the the west coast of Canaan, whereby the Philistines were at once generally not liked, yet in some ways were admired and accepted by the adjacent Israelite tribes and clans. Think for a minute about Iraq, 2008. Many of the people in Iraq, for various reasons, are more than willing to have the USA Armed Forces present, while others resent it deeply and would give up their lives to see the American forces ejected. Few, if any, Iraqis are enthusiastic about having a a foreign occupying force in their country, any more than we would be. But a growing number would like to leave behind the ancient backward ways of fundamental Islamic economics and law for some of the more advanced ways of the West. They, they don't want to abandon Islam, but they would like to incorporate less violence, some additional personal freedoms and more prosperity into their system, have some material things available to them that the developed world has. Maybe most Iraqis see that the U.S. is not a bunch of barbarians looking to loot their nation of its riches or who want to control every aspect of their lives or who drive around in armored vehicles hoping to kill anything that moves or who even want to be there permanently. Yet, the USA is so advanced in comparison, so wealthy, so overwhelmingly powerful, that it causes a majority portion of Israelite, uh, rather Iraqi society to feel jealous and bitter at our mere presence. Although there may be elements of Western culture they'd like to mold and adopt into their ancient traditional ways, especially the, the young are open to this, the older residents are quite agitated and some of the less desired attributes of Western society creep in unwelcomed and become attached to their traditional Eastern culture. Naturally, the USA is blamed for this. In this illustration I just gave you, replace Iraq with Israel and the United States with the Philistines, and you have a pretty good idea of how things proceeded and how life was lived among the Israelites and how the two sides interacted in a very complex way during Samson's era. The Philistines weren't forcing their way on the Israelites, but the Philistines advanced society with its leading edge edge technology, tremendous societal organization, unstoppable armed forces, prosperity and wealth, and an attractive religion lured many Israelites toward it like a steel ball towards a powerful magnet. For the young Hebrews, they saw no threat. For the old, there was nothing but threat. They knew that succumbing to the ways of these pagan Philistines would eventually lead to God's anger upon them for idolatry.
The Israelites always had this dangerous affinity to the mystery Babylon religions and the Philistines' methods of religious practice were no less inviting. Intermarriage between Hebrews and Philistines was common. And few Israelites even spoke out against it because it would have been seen as bigotry and intolerance. Business partnerships between Israelites and Philistines were usual. It brought advantage to both sides. Only the most expert modern archaeologists today can even distinguish between Hebrew and Philistine pottery from the 12th or 11th century B.C. Samson's era, so intertwined had those two cultures become. Now here's some things to watch for as we unfold this fascinating story. First is about Samson's character. Basically, he was like an overgrown and uncontrollable juvenile delinquent. He understood his tremendous, tremendous strength advantage. The admiration of the young men and especially the young girls that it brought with it. And he had no problem using it for his personal enjoyment. Second is that Samson was almost schizophrenic in his behavior. One moment he was willing to risk his life for the pure ways of the Israelite religion and the next he was partying with the pagans. Third is that while Samson recognized his status as a Nazarite, something given to him while he was still in the womb, of the several Torah requirements placed upon a Nazarite, the only one he seemed to care about was the long hair part. We're going to find him drinking alcohol, touching dead things, creating a lot of dead things, and eating foods he wasn't supposed to eat. Now let me close today with this. I wonder sometimes if the Apostle Paul didn't reflect upon Samson and his personal inability to do what was right before the Lord even though he knew what he should and should not do and then compared it to himself because in the book of Romans we see the prolific and thoughtful Rabbi Shaul pondering his own frustrating condition that eerily resembled this man of nearly unlimited strength who had lived 1200 years before him open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7 and we'll conclude there today Romans chapter 7 We're going to read verses 14 through 24. Romans chapter 7. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page uh, 1409. For we know that the Torah is of the Spirit. But as for me, I'm bound to the old nature, sold to sin as a slave. I don't understand my own behavior. I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the very things I hate. Now, if I'm doing what I don't want to do, I'm agreeing that the Torah is good. But now it is no longer the real me doing it, but the sin housed inside of me. 
For I know there is nothing good housed inside of me, that is, my, inside my old nature. I can want what is good, but I can't do it. For I don't do the good I want. Instead, the evil that I don't want is what I do. But if I am doing what the real me doesn't want, it is no longer the real me doing it, but the sin housed inside of me. So I find it to be the rule, a kind of a perverse Torah, that although I do what is good, evil still right there with me. For in my inner self I completely agree with God's Torah. In my various parts, I see a different Torah, one that battles with the Torah in my mind. And makes me a prisoner of sin's Torah, which is operating in my various parts. Oh, what a miserable creature I am! Who will rescue me from this body bound for death? I think Samson may well have thought these exact same thoughts after he had foolishly allowed his hair to be shorn, then had his eyes burned out, And then he was imprisoned by the Philistines and given humiliating tasks to perform in public. The difference is that while Samson probably didn't know the answer to the question, what a miserable creature I am, who will rescue me from this body bound for death? Paul did. Because in verse 25 of Romans 7, Paul boldly says with great relief, thanks be to God, he will. Through Yeshua, the Messiah, our Lord. He will rescue me.